Welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Luke. My name is John Whitaker, and I am so glad that you are joining me here on the Listener's Commentary. In this session, we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. And as Luke continues to give his presentation of Jesus and God's work through Jesus of bringing his kingdom into the world, here in this section, we get a couple snapshots that just continue to display the incredible authority and power that Jesus manifested in his ministry. Keep the context in mind that Jesus has just presented some of his most fundamental and foundational teaching for his kingdom in the previous chapter. He's called the apostles to himself and designated them as his official representatives. And now here we get uh, just the continuing expansion of his ministry as a result of his incredible power. The first snapshot that we get is really phenomenal in the sense of who is the one that comes and requests to Jesus and what it is that generates really amazement in Jesus. That's one of the things that stands out to me here in this first snapshot in Luke chapter 7 is Jesus' response is one of amazement. What made Jesus so amazed? Look at what happens here in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Uh, we get a transitional statement that leads into the next uh, major section. So verse 1 says, when he, Jesus, had completed all his teaching in the hearing of the people, everything that he had taught in his Sermon on the Plain or Sermon on the Mount, what Luke has just recorded in chapter 6, he went to Capernaum. And this is technically just the wrap-up of the end of chapter 6 and the setup for what happens next. And it's not just that he went to Capernaum. Literally, he entered into Capernaum. That is, he was teaching in the countryside outside of the city of Capernaum, somewhere uh, near it. But when he was done, he went back into town. Capernaum has been the home base for his ministry. So he goes back into town where he's fairly well known and where he has been operating out of for some time. So here's what happened when he gets back into the city. Now, verse 2, a centurion's slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. Keep the overarching context of, in mind. One of Luke's main themes is that God's kingdom is open to any and all. So even though Jesus focuses on the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as Matthew says in his gospel, Jesus regularly interacts with non-Jews as well. In fact, we noted that one of the reasons Jesus moved to Capernaum as the home base for his ministry is because there was much more opportunity to interact with a variety of types of people there than there was, say, at Nazareth or elsewhere because of the location of Capernaum. Really, at, at a, a important crossroads where several different regions connected, and thus there was a whole host of different kinds of people. Here, we have a centurion. What's a centurion? Well, a centurion was a key officer in the Roman army. He commanded roughly a century, that is about a hundred soldiers. And the Roman legion was made up of six centuries. Centurions were thus veteran soldiers. They were valued typically for their leadership and good judgment and their ability to command respect. In fact, it's interesting that every centurion Luke mentions in both his gospel, Luke, and in the book of Acts, is actually presented in a fairly positive light. Um, in fact, the very first 
a Gentile convert to Christianity that we see in the book of Acts is a centurion named Cornelius in Acts chapters 10 and 11. So this centurion that we meet here in Luke 7 is uh, has a servant who, who he honors and who he values, and this servant of his was so sick he was about to die. So here's what he does, verse 3. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and save the life of his slave. Notice that he himself doesn't come to Jesus. He sends others, and not just any others. In this case, notice he sends some Jewish elders, that is, Jewish community leaders who perhaps even had some official role as kind of town leaders for the Jewish people there in Capernaum. Um, and so he sends them to Jesus. Verse 4, when they, the elders, came to Jesus, they strongly urged him. They begged, they urged, they, they, they used all their persuasive power and their positional authority to urge Jesus, saying, he is worthy for you to grant this to him. And so they appeal to the fact that this centurion is a good man and he is worthy of Jesus' help. In fact, they say, verse 5, for he loves our nation, i.e., that is, he loves the Jewish people. Even though he's a Gentile, and even though he's a Roman military officer, and even though the Jews did not like the Romans um, overseeing them and dwelling in their land, this man, they say, loves our nation, loves our people. He treats us with respect. He's good to us. In fact, it was he, they say, who built us our synagogue. He maybe organized the building crew, or more likely, he helped fund it. He gave massive, generous donations to help build the synagogue in Capernaum. So he has a strong affinity for the Jewish people and a strong care for, love for. And so the Jewish elders want Jesus to know he's not just some lowly Gentile. He, he loves our nation. He's worthy of you to help him out. But the centurion himself, he has a different self-understanding than that. Verse 6, now Jesus started on his way with him. For whatever reason, Jesus probably had his own reasons. He was motivated to go help the centurion. And so he began to go with these Jewish elders to wherever the centurion was in town. But as he approached the house, here's what happens. But already, when he was not yet far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying. So Jesus crosses town, approaches the centurion's house, but before he gets all the way there, there the centurion actually sends more people to him and reaches out to him before he can come into his house. And here's what he has his friends say to Jesus. Lord, don't trouble yourself any further. For I am not worthy for you to enter under my roof. For that reason, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. Remember, the Jewish elders appealed to Jesus and said, This man is worthy. He loves our nation. But the centurion has a totally different view of himself. He says, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you myself. Notice that although he's a high-ranking military officer, 
he views Jesus in some regards or some way as having more rank than himself, higher status than himself, and that's why he, he isn't willing to approach him. That's why he's not willing to come himself. He, he doesn't think it's appropriate for him to come into his home as a Jewish man and a Jewish man with a high level of authority and status from his vantage point. He, he probably understands Jewish sensibilities. He's a centurion. He loves their nation. And he understands that for Jewish people to enter into the home of a Gentile rendered him unclean. So he's being respectful of Jesus. He's just deferring to him. And uh, because Jesus is a Jew. So he's just being very considerate of him, as well as saying, I think you actually have higher status than me, and I'm not worthy for you to enter into my home. Not only that, but he also has complete confidence in Jesus, even though he sees himself as unworthy of Jesus entering his home, he's not afraid to ask Jesus for a very specific request. Here's what he asks. He says to him, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house, but the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man placed under authority with soldiers under myself. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. So his request is this, heal my servant. His confidence, well, he knows how authority works. He has authority over him, um, higher military officers over him that tell him what to do. And he has uh, servants and soldiers under him, and he tells them what to do, and they do it. He understands how authorities work, and he's confident that Jesus has authority over this sickness. And so he's certain that all Jesus needs to do is simply give the order. Give the word. Just like the centurion give, gives orders to his soldiers and his servants, Jesus, if you just give the order, I know it'll be done. And how does Jesus respond? Well, verse 9, Jesus responds like this. Now, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. He was amazed. It is his confidence in Jesus, his sense of, look, I believe you have higher status than me, and yet I'm willing to ask you to do this nonetheless, and I have complete confidence in you, faith in you that you can do this, and that amazed Jesus. He was amazed at him, and Jesus turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found great faith. In other words, not even among the Jews. He's technically in Israel, right? He's among the nation of Israel. What he means when he says in Israel is he means among Jewish people. Not even in Israel itself, the very people of God, the people who should have the most faith, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Jesus was amazed and praised this man because of his faith. In fact, he commends the man and says that his faith is greater than Jesus seen among his own people. And that's instructive to us as we listen to this story. The thing that attracts Jesus's attention, the thing that amazes Jesus and really leads to Jesus to commend this man should be the same thing that leads Jesus to commend us, and that's faith confidence in Jesus and his ability. And he sees it here in the centurion and he's amazed by it. 
And so he, this is what he does in verse 10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, like they, they turn around, they go back to the centurion's house. And when they returned to the house, they found the slave in good health, healed from a distance, presumably with a word. We're not even told that Jesus gave a word other than his commendation of the centurion. Um, thus, we see that the centurion was right. Jesus really does have that kind of authority just to give the word, just to will it to happen, and it happens. Um, he's capable of long-distance healings. That's how much power and authority that Jesus has, and that's demonstrated here in this snapshot with the centurion. Now, what we get in verse 11 through 17 is another snapshot that continues Luke's portrayal, how much power and authority he has. He just healed a a centurion servant who was near death, he did so from a distance simply by willing it to happen. Here's what happens in the next snapshot, verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a city called Nain. So he leaves Capernaum, he heads to the city of Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. So Jesus his disciples, including the twelve, and an entourage of people make this trip from Capernaum to Nain. Nain is about 25 miles south of Capernaum. We're not told why Jesus and the crowd went there, but we do know Jesus regularly visited and taught in other towns around Galilee. So maybe he's just going, carrying on his ministry, doing what he does, right? Traveling from town to town teaching. Here's what happened as he approached Nain. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, which tells us something about the city of Nain, it actually had a city gate, so there was at least a wall of some sort around the city with a gate. So he's approaching the city gate, about to enter into the city of Nain. And as he approaches the gate, there's another crowd coming out of the city through the city gate. So as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And so we have a sizable crowd from the city uh, coming out, probably mourning and wailing as the custom was for this widow who has lost her only son. So they're coming out of the city of gate. Jesus and his entourage is approaching the city of gate, um, and they run into each other. Imagine and this the scene, right? You have weeping and wailing of Jewish mourners. The, de the deceased is a man. Not only is he a man, he's the only son of a widow. This is bad. This is really bad. She's a widow. That is, she doesn't have anyone to support her. This is her only son, who would have been the one to have cared for her as she grew older, the one to provide for her and to support her to make sure she was taken care of. Widows are consistently viewed in the scriptures as some of the most vulnerable for whom the Lord has great concern. And then to lose her only son leaves her with no protection and no care. And that's why Jesus responds the way he does. Look what happens in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. And he said to her, do not go on weeping. And so Jesus sizes up the situation. He realizes, oh man. And just as the scriptures have said in the past that the Lord feels compassion for widows, particularly widows who lose their only son, especially those kind, Jesus, the Lord, 
feels compassion for her, and he's moved to action. He doesn't just feel it. He's moved to action. Do not go on weeping. Verse 14, and he came up, he touched the coffin, and the bearers, those carrying whatever the man is being carried on, the translation says coffin. It's probably more likely some sort of mat or something that he's being carried on. So he touches that. Those carrying him and on the mat stop. And he said to the dead man, young man, I say to you, arise. Jesus simply gives the word, get up, as if this, this dead man is asleep. Get up, and we'll see that the young man does. Now, before we look at that, however, we need to at least hear in this little episode that there are echoes here of Elijah and Elisha, who operated in this very area, who were well known, like they were the, they were part of the social consciousness and the heritage and the history of this very region where Jesus performs these miracles. Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17 raises the only son of a widow in Zarephath who had died. Or Elisha raising the Shunammite's son in 2 Kings chapter 4. And that's actually, Elisha raising the Shunammite's son is actually just around the hill from Nain, like just a few miles away on the other side of the hill. And in fact, when that, that particular town where that happened sort of slowly kind of petered out of existence, those people moved around the hill to Nain. So like those events happened in this area. They were part of the collective consciousness of this town, which is why the townsfolk will respond the way we, they do, as we'll see in just a moment. So don't go on weeping. He commands the the bearers of the deceased to stop, and he says to the young man, the deceased person, young man, I say to you, get up, arise. And verse 15, and the dead man sat up. And he began to talk. He sits up and he looks around and he begins in some way to speak. We don't know what he's saying, but we don't know what it's like to come back from death either, right? So he begins to talk and there's all this crowd around him. And Jesus gave him back. Notice this. Jesus gave him back to his mother. That was his heart. This is the intentional thing. Here, here's your son. He can now take care of you. Jesus gave him back to his mother. And fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has appeared among us, and God has visited his people. And out of their heritage, out of their history, out of what Elisha had done just around the hill, they respond with, God's back. He has visited his people in this person of Jesus. A great prophet has appeared to us. And verse 17, and this report about him spread throughout all the land of the Jews. That's the sense of Judea here, not the technically necessarily the political region of Judea, but all the land of the Jews and in the surrounding region, all throughout the cities and among all the Jewish people, this report about him began to spread. And people began to hear about it, that he brought a, 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 a dead boy back to life, just like Elijah did, just like Elisha did. Who is this? And the word about him began to spread. And so we see in these two snapshots the authority and the power of Jesus. He has the ability to heal someone who's so sick they're near death and do it from the long distance. He has the power and the authority to make the 
the dead come back to life. Jesus, this Jewish man, Jesus has this kind of authority and power. Not only that, in these two snapshots, we also see Jesus's compassion and the fact that Jesus marvels at and is amazed by people's faith in him. And so Jesus actually engages with people. He responds to people. And one of the things that draws Jesus to people is faith. And another thing that draws uh, Jesus to people is his, his own compassion for their hurting and their desperation and their plight and their needs. And, and so we see Jesus. We see Jesus, a man moved by compassion and a man marveling at faith. And we see his very authority and power. And as we respond to this one, uh, may we, like the centurion, may we have this kind of faith. As we see Jesus' authority and power in episodes like this, may it move us to even greater confidence in him and, and greater trust, even even if he doesn't perform a miracle on our behalf, may we have confidence that Jesus loves us, he has compassion for us, and he knows what's best for us, and he's able to help.